Well, good morning everybody and welcome to this pre-recorded service for the 18th of October 2020 for Calvary Church here in Brighton. And as you can see, we're meeting by YouTube and uh, planning to uh, find our way to meeting together as uh, time goes on, because that's something so important for us to do and we really, really want to do that as a church together. So welcome if you're uh, regular or just dropping in I use my usual introduction. My name's Philip Wells. I'm elder here at the church and our church is uh, based on the south coast of England, just uh, on the south coast, south of London. And uh, back in the days of normality, we were 70 or 80 people meeting together. So that's us and you're very welcome to join in uh, this morning. Uh, if you don't know us, uh, let me just say that we are a church in a state of some uh, shock and uh, um, grief and uh, very conscious of our weakness and dependence upon God uh, at the moment. And that will reflect itself in what we say and think about this morning. So we come seeking God and his wisdom and his comfort and we come seeking the Father through Jesus the Son. And let's begin with a prayer. You, Almighty God, are the heart knower and look upon our hearts. In our sin, grant us your forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. In our weakness, grant us your heavenly power, the power which is made perfect in weakness. In our perplexity, and grief uh, and shock. Grant us the comfort that comes from the God of all comfort and grant us the wisdom that comes from heaven to those who ask. And in our emptiness and need, fill us with the fullness which comes from your glorious abundance through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The writer to the Hebrews has a very clear message for Christian people, which is, Fix your eyes on Jesus. In Matthew 14, 30, you may remember that Peter was called by the Lord to walk on water and uh, he was beginning to do so. But then he saw the wind and began to be afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Well, we absolutely need to fix our eyes on Jesus and we need to be not intimidated by the wind or the waves around us. Uh, and then by the power of Jesus, perhaps we'll be able to look back in days to come and say, wow, we walked on water as we fixed our eyes on him. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1 of Hebrews makes this explicit where it says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Fix your thoughts, fix your gaze, fix your eyes on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest whom we confess. And Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great High Priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And in a moment we are going to approach the throne of grace and come to the great high priest for the, uh, the help that we need. But uh, first, let's uh, sing a couple of songs back to back uh, first of all, thinking of Jesus is the name we honour, Jesus is the name we praise. And then thinking about Jesus as the high priest, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest uh, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So those two songs, number 304, Jesus is the name we honour, and before the throne of God above. So let's sing those. One, two, one, two, three, four. 
is the name we trust. He is the King above all other kings. Let all creation stand and sing that Jesus is our God. We will glorify, we will lift in high, we will give Him honor and praise. We will glorify, we will lift in high, we will give Him honor and praise. Jesus is the Father's splendor. together to the through the great high priest uh, before this throne of grace let's pray 
God our Father, we come to the one who loves us, the one who has planned everything, chosen us, brought us, given his Son to us, given the Spirit to us, the one who loves us and disciplines us for our good. We come in praise and thanks and love to our Heavenly Father. We come confessing sins of thought and word and deed, of commission and omission. We don't want to ignore or minimise our sins, but earnestly ask you for forgiveness and earnestly ask you to give us true, continual and deep repentance. Help us to grow up and also to grow down and become like Jesus, not just in our outward behaviour, but in the secret inner processes of our hearts. We want to be grateful to you and not grumbling. So please help us and deliver us from ingratitude, from questioning your wisdom. Thank you that you are wise in all that you do. Deliver us from the temptation of finding fault with your hand upon our lives, where we think you have dealt badly with us in what you gave us or in what you chose to remove from us. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for every good and perfect gift that you have given to us that comes from heaven above into our lives. We pray asking you for help in our time of need. And at this moment, we need your help to process all that's happening around us, um, particularly as a church. Help us to see things through the spectacles of Scripture rather than through the lens of mere and raw emotion. Help us to be a church that walks by faith and not by feeling, that walks by faith and not by sight. Please give wisdom to our elders and deacons. May they or we be guided through these next months so that uh, in time to come we'll be able to say, He made my feet like hinds feet upon the high places. Help us to learn the lessons of instinctive trust in you and trust in your providential dealings. Help us as we cross the desert to find refreshment. There is a stream that makes glad the city of God. Lord, make us glad by that stream. Help us to keep together as your family as we go forward. Please provide the things that we need in the desert. Manna water, guidance, shepherding, and may none of your sheep wander or perish. We pray for our world in all its need. We pray for the leaders and governors of the nations, that they will turn from self and human confidence and put their trust in the only God. We pray for you to have mercy on our city and particularly bless and strengthen all the gospel churches, large and small, in our city. And we particularly think of our brothers and sisters at uh, Barkill Evangelical Church and New Life Church Moolscombe and the Grace Church Plant and Ebenezer Reformed Baptist Church and Southern Cross Evangelical Church and Peace Haven Evangelical Church, as well as the bigger churches in our city. We pray for those who are in need and suffering at this time, that each may know comfort from the God of all comfort. And we pray again for those who have deeply lost their way. Good shepherd, go and bring them to themselves and bring them back to you in a deep and true way. And uh, at this time, we ask that you will be close to your people, that bring glory to yourself Teach us afresh and teach us really and deeply that you are God. All our hope is in you uh, and that uh, you never, never fail. So may we know this for sure ourselves and may the world see it. Amen. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Still thinking of fixing our eyes on Jesus, I'm reminded of these words in John 15 verse 1, where Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And in this, these words Jesus talks about the centrality of himself. He is the vine. He is the sustainer of his people. And only in belonging to him and drawing from him do we bear fruit. And he talks about the necessity of fruit. If there is no fruit, then we're only seeming to be in Christ. And in reality, there is not life but barrenness, and there'll be a cutting off. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And he talks about the Father's method in producing fruit. He prunes. If I was a vine branch, I don't think I'd particularly want to be pruned. Uh, if branches could feel pain, it would be a painful process. Um, it certainly involves loss. If I was a vine, I'd be saying, I quite like that branch. Why are you cutting it off? Uh, it's certainly something that I was attached to. But there is a purpose in this. And the Father's purpose is to produce more and better fruit. He prunes, uh, well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And I don't think that's a million miles away from our situation as a church. We've received what seems to us a, a painful and perhaps even inexplicable uh, couple of losses. Uh, but let's see this as coming from the hand of a firm but loving Heavenly Father who wants us to mature and be fruitful. And he's actually not afraid to do this in a way that we might find painful and uncomfortable and he does it so that we will be even more fruitful so let's take heart from uh, from what the Lord Jesus says in that text we're now going to go back to the desert for uh, two readings uh, first of all 1 Corinthians 13 1 uh, sorry 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 13 that Christopher is going to read uh, and we'll learn some searching lessons there and then Brenda's going to read to us from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 to 6, verse 12, the passage that we're in the middle of considering together. So thank you, Christopher and uh, Brenda, for those two readings. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, 
and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. To their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now, having heard those words, uh, let's uh, move to our talk. Uh, the title I've put there is Fruiting and Not Falling. I think anybody with half a brain could think of a better title than that. But uh, it does make some sort of sense. I hope we will find out as we, as we proceed, but let's ask God's help first. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need your touch upon our lives by your word and spirit. So please open the scriptures to us and prove to us again that the scriptures are living and active and powerful and dividing right down into our hearts and spirits and making us fruitful and enabling us to draw from the Lord Jesus upon whom we fix our eyes now by the help of your spirit. Amen. Well, we've prayed and let's look now at the text. We're in Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, the letter to the Hebrews, as you will remember, or I'll just say if this is the first time you've been looking at this, is uh, a letter that has uh, a strong thread of warning. And it's a bit like this picture of somebody at Berlin Gap. There's a big crack in the cliff and they're going so ridiculously close to the cliff edge it's really really dangerous do they not realize the danger picture would send shivers down your spine and uh, that's the danger and uh, you would want to say danger get out of there and that's what we're going to be looking at and uh, as i've said before this is mostly an in-house issue for people who say they're christians but you're very welcome to watch if you don't, wouldn't say that you're a Christian because it will show you the sort of things that being a Christian involves. So there's my little diagram uh, with my spindly uh, drawing of uh, a cliff edge with water at the bottom of it. And we've got person A who's on the path. There's the safe path. 
person B who's wandering off the path, person C who's actually in real danger, there they are, and person D who has fallen over and uh, is beyond rescue. And of these people, which one are we? Uh, God help us that we might be person A. Now, how can we make sure that we're person A? That's really what this is all about. How can we live as person A, the one who's safely on the path? So there's my little picture again. And we're going to look more closely and carefully at another aspect of this passage. I think it deserves our careful attention. Go a little bit further into the text. So my plan is uh, just to I'll briefly recap some of the issues that might have cropped up in your mind as we read this particular passage, of which there are five. And then I'm going to ask these three questions. Where do these, um, where, where do, he's referring to people who might be falling over the edge and he doesn't want them to. Where did they start off from? Where did they get to? And what was the danger? So looking at those three things, where, where do they start off from? Where do they get to? And what, what is the danger of this situation? So let's do, look very briefly at those five questions and objections that might come to your mind. Uh, number one, it says that, that he says they were infants. Did he really think they were infants? We looked at this last time and we said, no, he's probably using sarcasm. What conditions were his hearers in? This word nothros, meaning lazy. And uh, that's really the, what we're looking at, the, the, the condition of laziness and how to avoid it. And uh, also this set of elementary principles, which seems a strange set of elementary principles, including baptism and laying on of hands. And we'll look at that, uh, God willing, uh, hopefully next week, because I think there's something to be looked at there. So let's just leave that on one side until we get to that next week, uh, God willing. And this whole question of whether Christians can fall away, that's really at the heart of what this passage is about. And uh, that's what we're going to be exploring. Um, the Calvinist the Calvinist view, which I think is, is exactly what the Bible teaches, says that God decides who's going to be a Christian. He saves those people and keeps them. And uh, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And that is a true statement. But it doesn't invalidate that the great shepherd keeps his sheep by warning them and sometimes terrifying them of the prospect of wandering away. That's how he keeps them, but it's him who keeps them. I know it looks as though the writer says the readers may not be kept, but um, let's just uh, work through that. Even if you said, oh, people just have free will, there's a problem because it says it's impossible for those who've been enlightened, etc. So they're not free anyway. And the the point of this, which I think we keep coming back to, is that the Christian life is lived on the basis of living, walking with the Lord today, having faith, keeping going with faith, uh, in, inheriting the promises through steadiness, through holding on to our confession, through not being knocked. If we've fallen over, we get back up again. And it's like the people in Hebrews 11 who, uh, through patience, inherit what has been promised. So just quickly those five points this uh, one about falling away will be very close to what we're talking about um, just now. Okay, so the three questions, where did they start from? This is number one. Where did they start from? Now, where do they start from? Now, clearly, the writer is saying that the possibility of falling away is to be treated as real. It's not just hypothetical. It's not something that is just there to scare you, but... It, you can't. You can pretty well ignore it. It is a. Re, we're to be treated as a real possibility. And you may say, "Oh, well, it's only real for people who didn't start in the right place." Um, maybe it's obviously because they didn't start in the right place. Now, I'm going to say there are very definitely wrong places to start. So, if you start your Christian life with a Christianity that doesn't include repentance, that's the wrong place to start. The Christian, true Christianity must start with turning from sin to the Saviour. There's no other way to do it. Uh, we, we turn to Christ, but we turn from sin, and we hate our sin, we leave it, and we move away from it 
and turn towards the Saviour. That's the only way to start. Uh, people start try to start Christianity without understanding that the cross is the place where Jesus bore the wrath of God. They say maybe Jesus just was setting an example or, I don't know, Jesus was showing his mastery or something. But no, you can't really start there. You have to start at the cross, which was a place where Jesus bore the wrath of God for us sinners. There's no salvation otherwise. People start Christianity perhaps by thinking we're on a road like a ladder, working our way up through achieving merit, uh, through our good works. Uh, that's the um, sort of typical Roman Catholic take, or perhaps a Jehovah's Witness take on um, spirituality. And uh, the Bible has got a completely different starting point. We don't acquire merit. We are given righteousness as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ by grace. And that's the place to start. So there are wrong places. But I have to say that won't let us off the hook on this particular passage because these people seem to start in exactly the right place in terms of the advantages they have the privileges they're given, you can't fault them. A little bit like the reading we had in 1 Corinthians 10, where uh, Paul, who, who says the same thing but from a, a different point of view, he says uh, the, the people in the desert, they were all under the cloud, they all passed through the sea, they were all baptised into Moses, they all drank from the same spiritual drink, they all... Uh, drank from the spiritual rock, but they didn't make it to the end. They all had the advantages, but some of them, they all had the advantages, but some of them did not live up to them. Some of them um, committed sexual immorality. Some of them tested the Lord. Some of them grumbled. Some of them were idolaters. And these things were examples for us, he says, um, don't rely on your advantages. Um, so if you are standing firm, he says, be careful that you don't fall. If you're standing firm, take, be careful that you don't fall. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Well, what, were the, um, what was the starting point of these people in Hebrews 6? Well, I'm looking at verse 4 and saying they had been given light and not darkness. It says... Uh, they have been enlightened. What is the natural condition of the human race? Well, uh, there is a certain nobility to human beings. They're made in the image of God, although that image is spoiled. It's, uh, it's not completely eradicated. Uh, human beings are creative. They are made in the image of God. God is a creator. Human beings create, can't help but create. We create sentences and call it talking and conversation. We uh, create football passes, or some of us do. Wonderfully creative, beautiful game, isn't it, football? Some people create music, some people create art, and we all create choices. We, we, we're not pre-programmed in that sense. We, we go through life as responsible, free moral agents. Um, and uh, we are responsible... So if a rock hits you, you can't blame the rock. But if a person hits you, you can blame the person. If the car won't start, you can hardly blame the car. Uh, unlike the um, bit in Faulty Towers, where the car won't start and Basil Faulty gets out a stick and hits the car because it's so naughty, only some people will remember that. But uh, human beings are praiseworthy and blameworthy. That's what human beings are like. But in particular, in connection with this thought, all human beings are in the dark as far as a saving relationship with God is concerned. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see that. So the sun's shining, but they can't see it. But these people in Hebrews, they have been enlightened. They've been given light. They're not just in darkness. They've had this advantage. 
that uh, their eyes have certainly been opened to this, that they've seen the light. So where did they start from? They've been given light and not darkness. Where did they start from? Secondly, they tasted and they hadn't just spectated. So it talks about tasting. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age. So I think uh, taste, if we think of tasting as having the full gastronomic experience. So it isn't, uh, for example, we sometimes talk about head knowledge and heart knowledge. I don't think it's a terribly helpful way of talking about it. But if you want to use that expression, it wasn't just head knowledge. They haven't just read about Christianity, but some of Christianity, they've actually experienced it. Uh, so um, there's my tongue tasting. Uh, they've tasted. They've tasted the heavenly gift, you know, the thing that God gives from heaven. They've tasted some of that. Well, maybe they've been in uh, the middle of a, a meeting where God has been praised and they've tasted what it is to to enjoy the God of heaven and they've tasted something of the glory of God and tasted something of the uh, uh, of the brilliance of salvation. Maybe they've tasted something of the love of God's people. Maybe they've been loved uh, in the fellowship of God's people. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Perhaps uh, as the Bi they've been to a Bible study, they said, yes, God is speaking to me through this. The Bible is true. Uh, and not only is it true, but it's good and desirable. And I've learned something, and my life has been changed to a degree. I've received benefit from, from this. I've known that God speaks through the Bible. They've tasted these things and maybe even had answers to prayer. So in these things, I'm saying, where do they start from? Well, they started in the right place. And here they have tasted and not just spectated. But having tasted does not make a barrier around the cliff edge. It does not mean I'm immune to the dangers of the cliff edge. Just because I started off by tasting doesn't mean that I can go to the cliff edge with impunity. And thirdly, well, they'd apparently started, but crucially, they had not yet finished. Uh, they started the race, but they haven't yet finished it. And he says, uh, verse 11, we want you to keep the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy. Well, uh, there's somebody um, who, who started, uh, verse 10, uh, you did the Lord's work, you've helped his people, you've shown love for his name, and uh, in a sense you're still helping God's people, in a sense, to an extent. But there in my little picture is uh, somebody who, who who's on the way through the desert to the heavenly city, but has got lazy. And I said, no, nah, that's fine. I'm not going to really go any further. This is far enough. Uh, I started well, but um, yeah, this is as far as it goes. I'm just going to uh, put my feet up spiritually at this point. Because, you see, starting is not the same as finishing. And it's finishing that counts. It's still running the race that counts. It's still marching to Zion that counts. Uh, and our brother, uh, whom um, church people will, will think of, ran that race to the end, walked to Zion to the end, and he was still marching to Zion when he left this world. Finishing is what counts, not just starting and then giving up, putting your feet up. They'd apparently started but not finished, and there is no substitute for finishing. Uh, it, it is in the nature of true faith to outlast this world. True faith has something of eternity about it, and it doesn't give up halfway. It doesn't peter out. It is something eternal, and it shows because people don't just start the race, they finish it. Uh, Matthew twenty four thirteen, Jesus says, maybe the context is a little bit different, but this is what he says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not those who get lazy and uh, put their feet up halfway through. He who stands firm to the end. So no one can say, oh, I've got far enough on this journey. I, I, I remember how I started. I, I gave my life to the Lord at such and such a time. And I used to serve in the Sunday school. And I used to uh, help and so on. 
Uh, and I, I've done all that, and I'm now going to put my feet up. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. You can't say that. No one can say, I've got far, as far as I'm going to go on this journey, I don't need to press on any further. No, we all need to press on and finish, uh, finish the race and keep on walking and fight the good fight. Okay, well, that was about where did they start from? And they started from the right place. Number two, where did they get to? Well, this is what uh, happens in verse 6. Uh, it's impossible if they fall away to be brought to repentance because to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So where did they get to? This is quite an important question, isn't it? Because in our worst days, Christians might think, maybe that's me, maybe I've fallen off the edge and there's no way back. And I think the very fact that you're thinking that probably means that there is a way back because you're still sensitive to the situation. Uh, now, these people, uh, says the writer, this is, this, is, this is where this is all heading. You come to a point of saying that Jesus is wrong. Uh, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. And my, my simple take on this is when Jesus was crucified, it was the judgment systems of this world saying, guilty, bad, wrong, unacceptable, intolerable about Jesus. This man deserves to die. And these people are saying the same thing all over again. Because what did the cross say? The cross said, Jesus is worthy of death. The cross said, Jesus is guilty and wrong. And he says that if you, if you get, take this line, you uh, no, I've now got uh, Hebrews 10, 29, which says a similar thing. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. So to get to this point that you say Jesus is wrong, uh, he's worthy of death, is, is like to trample him underfoot. And that's a terrible place to be. There's no way back from that. Uh, and take heart, brother or sister, if you're worrying about it, because you, I think the fact you're worrying shows you haven't got to that point. That's a terrible extreme position to be in. There's no way back from that. Uh, and these people have got themselves in the place of repeating this hideous uh, position of saying Jesus is guilty and wrong and does not deserve to live. They're saying Jesus is wrong and they're also saying Jesus is rubbish. They subject him, he says, to public disgrace all over again. The cross is a place of disgrace. The cross is, a, the cross is really a place where the crucifying authorities treat people as rubbish and disgrace and that's what the, that's what the writers of the Hebrews says you really really don't want to get to that point and maybe this is what some of the people had got to that they'd so turned from Christianity that maybe even publicly they had done terrible things like disowning Jesus in public like insulting Jesus in public. Uh, some maybe, you know, you can think of persecutors who have pressured Christians to do in insulting and belittling things to the name of Jesus, to their Bible, uh, to, um, well, whatever. But he says you really don't want to get to that, to publicly uh, repudiate Jesus, to say he's rubbish. Or maybe to quietly repudiate Jesus. That would be a disgraceful thing for us to do, and we really don't want to get to that point. And in this condition, he says, if you're saying Jesus is rubbish, well, there's no way back from that, is there? So I use this word literally. I don't know whether I'm using it right. In this condition, there is literally nowhere else to turn for salvation. There is no way back from this, because there is no other way than the way you've just trampled on and it is literally impossible to repent if at the same time you are stating 
that Jesus is rubbish. Oh, please, don't get into that position. That's how far the fall goes. That's what it, that's at the bottom of this cliff. And, dear brothers and sisters, surely none of us would remotely want to get to that point. Uh, it's a long, long fall. Don't go near that cliff edge. And my third point here. Uh, what was the danger? Well, I'm now thinking of verses 7 and 8, where it says, actually it says four. Uh, our new international version doesn't include four, but it is there in the original. The four meaning this is the reason for what I just said. I just said this because of what I'm about to say. I just said this for this following sentence is true. And he says, for the land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it's being farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. That's the danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. That's what you do with unfruitful land. And he says, uh, he refers to this land. And it's, it's interesting the way he puts it. It's very worthwhile stopping on to look. He talks about land that drinks in the rain. There we are, some rain. And there's some um, uh, vegetation being produced. Now, he's actually quoting back from Deuteronomy chapter 11. And I'm going to pause while you find Deuteronomy chapter 11. Because this is how things were set up in the land, as, a, as the promised land, when uh, the nation entered the promised land. Now I can say, while well, you're finding Deuteronomy 11, that in, in the Old Covenant, uh, land sort of worked as a physical barometer of blessing. Not quite the same in the New Covenant, because our relationship with land is different. But in the Old Covenant, um, land was a, a physical barometer of blessing. If the land was doing well, it shows that it was blessed. And in Deuteronomy 11.11, 11, it says, uh, the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and oil, and I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. And then it goes on to say, be careful, because if you are enticed away and worship other gods, and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the heavens so it will not rain, and the ground will not uh, will yield no produce. So there's land that drinks in the rain. And this is what uh, Deuteronomy, sorry, this is what Hebrews is referring to, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, produces a good crop. And uh, as we've read in Deuteronomy, uh, this shows a condition of blessing, of advantage, of favour, of the Lord's smile. Now, let's think about the thorns and thistles. Now, thorns and thistles indicate something completely different. You remember in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, when God spoke to Adam uh, on the uh, 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 subsequent to his sin, he said to Adam, cursed is the ground, it will produce thorns and thistles. And thorns and thistles then uh, is, is indicative of curse. And you get the same sort of language in Isaiah 5. And again, I'll pause while you might be good enough to look up Isaiah 5. This is the uh, rather famous chapter about the song of the vineyard. God planted a vineyard. He gave it lots of advantages. He, uh, we're told in chapter 5, verse 1, he dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower. He looked for a crop of good grapes. And uh, uh, God asked, what, what, what else could I have done? I really looked after this uh, 
vineyard, what more could I have done for it? And I looked for uh, good grapes, and it yielded only bad fruit. And it goes on to say in verse 6, briars and thorns will grow there. Well, I know briars isn't exactly the same word as thorns, but I'm pretty sure it's the same idea. Briars and thorns uh, indicate the condition of abandonment. So when the writer to the Hebrews uses the idea of land drinking in rain and thorns and thistles, he's not just making a rather random um, statement about uh, the countryside. He's putting it into this into this context of the way God gives advantages to his people and then looks for fruit. Um, and he doesn't want to see this curse of um, fruitlessness. So here's land that is cultivated and given many advantages, but he says, how on earth does it produce thorns and thistles? You know, what's going on if land that has been given rain and sun and cultivation and care, many, many advantages, many, many blessings, and produces thorns and thistles. Uh, and you might say, that's just perverse, isn't it? How could that happen? How ungrateful, how perverse, how deeply, deeply wrong. Something has gone deeply wrong uh, when that danger becomes the reality. Uh, so what, what was the danger? The danger is of receiving blessings, advantages, and actually not responding to them, having hard hearts, letting, it, letting God's blessings run off, your, uh, run off us like water off a duck's back, and not taking things to heart, and not changing, and not being grateful, and not honouring God, and turning into briars and thistles. How grateful, how ungrateful and how perverse. Don't do it. Well, that was a quick run through these, um, these issues here in chapter 6. We're going to come back to them. But let's conclude in this way. The mark of the elect, because God does have his elect, but the mark of the elect is that they believe the promises and heed the warnings. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. That's something for all of us, isn't it? Uh, if we feel we're standing, just beware. Don't, don't stand on our laurels, as it were. But each day, take heed lest we fall. No matter where you started, that doesn't guarantee anything. It's taking heed lest we fall today. Uh, you might have started very well, uh, might have started in exactly the right place. But let's be honest, that was uh, some time ago. It might just have been a year ago, but it was in the past. You can't rest on that. You have, it has to be how we're living today. Uh, starting well does not give you safe permission to explore the cliff edge. I'll just repeat that. Starting in the right place does not give you safe permission to explore the cliff edge. Uh, and number two, yeah, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Bear in mind where you might end up. The What seems like a little innocent exploration of the cliff edge to begin with will end up in a severe drop. And uh, it's, it, it doesn't bear thinking about what's at the bottom of that cliff denying Jesus, trampling on him, saying he's wrong and rubbish. Nobody wants to get to that point, surely. And thirdly, the danger here. The danger of having advantages like rain and blessing. The advantages don't compensate for absence of fruit. We have to produce genuine fruit. And what sort of fruit is this? Well, uh, it's a subject in itself. But whatever fruit that you get from looking at Jesus, from fixing our eyes on Jesus, seems to me that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll actually become like the person that we're looking at. Say dogs become like their owners, don't they? 
uh, well, whether that's true or not, if we belong to Jesus, let's become like him. Uh, and not just on the outside, on the inside, and not just partially, but thoroughly. Uh, fruit of courageously standing for Jesus, holding fast to the confession of our faith, not being ashamed of him. Fruit, well, the sort of fruit that comes from fixing our eyes on the world to come, looking ahead beyond this life, that's got to produce some change in us, hasn't it? Um, has got to uh, make some sort of difference. So let's produce the, the fruit that comes from looking to Jesus, taking a courageous stand for Jesus, and having our eyes fixed on the world to come. Fruit like not hardening our hearts, not developing a hard heart. Well, the mark of the elect is that they believe the promises and heed the warnings. And I've said this about... Uh, can genuine Christians fall away? Well, um, genuine Christians don't fall away and can't fall away. But when it comes to actual real life, uh, there is no neat theoretical answer. Uh, the theology doesn't, doesn't make up for how we live. And the only answer in real life is stay on the path, don't go near the edge. That's, that, that's the nearest we get to, to this conundrum. It just says, you, stay on the path, don't go near the edge. Or put it another way, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. And that's for all of us, and that's for today. It's a good lesson for us to take to heart right now. And let's right now pray a prayer together. Lord, we're in this wilderness situation We've got a path to tread, and I guess that each of us is aware, for each of us individually, there are byways and risks and um, diversions that would take us close to the cliff edge. And for each of us, please deliver us from this. We can't uh, survive on this path without the help that comes from heaven, from the great high priest. So help each of us to draw from him the help that we need each day so that we will march to Zion and arrive safely, looking to the promises and putting our trust in you. And we pray in the name of the Great Shepherd. Amen. Well, we're going to close with a song uh, that uh, meant a lot to somebody that I'm sure we can all identify as we sit at home. And this was recorded specially for him, but... Uh, he wasn't here long enough to listen to it. He's hearing better music now. But maybe we on earth can join in with this song and benefit from it and, uh, and join in with sweet memories. It's a, a song of Christian testimony and uh, resolute certainty, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. It's uh, Christ-centred and it looks forward as well. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. It looks forward to the promised rest at the end of the desert. So let's sing this before we close. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Saviour all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Saviour 
all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy. Whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with His goodness. Lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior. And having sung, we'll close with a prayer. And uh, when this is finished, we have the opportunity to uh, listen or sing along with that song that we learnt last week, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near, one of the Sovereign Grace songs. And we'll play out with that. But just now, let's pray. May the God of peace, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's goodbye from me just now, and uh, see you soon. But um, as we sing out with afflicted saint to Christ, or near, I'll say bye-bye, bye-bye just now. Bye. Still try.